leader from the Wesleyan Methodist Church, our denominational whānau. Uh, Brett will be bringing the message, and he's continuing in this sermon series that we've, this is week three now of our sermon series, Acts and the Movement of God. You remember I've been harping on the last couple of weeks saying, you can't call yourself a mature disciple of Jesus if you've not discipled someone else to faith in Jesus. Um, and Brett's going to continue with that, and with the message that actually church planting is one of the, one of the most critical and helpful ways that the gospel goes forth. So we're going to continue through Acts this morning. Uh, this is his wife, Kristen. Kristen's going to bring the scripture reading, uh, but want to just take a moment to pray for them and pray for us as we come around God's Word together. So Lord, we do thank you that your Word is alive and active. You are always speaking and moving through your Word to shape and form the things that you want in our minds and in our hearts. And so we align ourselves and our will with yours this morning. We open our minds, we open our hearts. Holy Spirit, would you make us to be good soil so that the seed of your word might be planted deep in our souls, deep in our spirits, that its roots would grow down deep and it would, in due course, bear fruitful kingdom harvest for your glory and your name. Lord, we pray with the psalmist, may the words of Brett's mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer, and we all said together, Amen. Reading from Acts 6, and then jumping into Acts 7. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day, some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandra, Cilicia, and the province of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, We heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. This roused the people, the elders, and the teachers of religious law. So they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these accusations true? This was Stephen's reply. You stubborn people. You are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. This 
is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. Well, that's a nice, uh, (coughs) cheery start to the morning. I I actually meant to check with Clint whether you guys have a stoning policy um, as a guest preacher. That's something I normally do check. As a National Movement Health and Safety says, if you have stones with you, please leave them at the door. Um, Just thought it was worth clarifying that. But it doesn't get much worse than this. It doesn't get much worse. It's a total disaster, uh, what happened that day. And, And things had actually been going pretty well for the church. Acts 6, 6 actually opens with the news that the church in Jerusalem was rapidly multiplying. It wasn't perfect. There was still opposition to contend with, but the church was flourishing in spite of this. People were being added daily to their number. Leadership recruitment was happening where it needed to happen. Pastoral system, pastoral care systems were being strengthened uh, to deal with uh, the challenges of growth as the church had to wrestle with how it made sure everyone got fed. Uh, even Jewish priests were coming over uh, to Team Jesus. And, and the, number of, the number of believers in Jerusalem were increasing uh, rapidly. And into this picture of fruitfulness and flourishing we have the story of Stephen. He he was one of their best. One of their best, set apart as one of the leaders, full of the Holy Spirit, the scriptures say. Full of God's grace and power, the scriptures say. And then gone. Just gone. His life snuffed out. And the city is on a bit of a knife edge. Church basically kicked out of Jerusalem. And you've you got to wonder, how is it going to come back from this? How will the church come back from this one? Well, uh, Clint has given me a pretty straightforward task this morning. Just preach Acts chapter 6 to Acts chapter 12. Just like, this is six chapters, uh, people. I get set up in my own local church as well. Like, like we did a series on the minor prophets recently and they gave me Hosea. Anyone ever read? Yeah. Whew. Or we did, we did one on First Peter and they gave me suffering for being a Christian. Like, and today I get six chapters, but you're welcome, Clint. Um, so I'll be doing what they call in Bible, Bible college, um, it's called pogo stick preaching. So what happens with pogo stick preaching, you jump up and then you land somewhere and then when you've been there for a while, you jump again. and you, So we're going to pogo stick our way through these six chapters, landing on some key moments and then pogo sticking to the next key moment. If you, if you look up any books on preaching, you'll find that, that phrase in there. As a, you, won't, you won't find it there. But the good news, the good news is we have already smoked chapters six and seven. Done. We've already sorted those. Uh, and then we're, we're up to chapter eight already. And it opens, we start to see what Stephen's death has unleashed. This is what it says. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered, scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Is this starting to sound a bit familiar? Back at the beginning of the series two weeks ago, Clint shared from Acts 1.8, 
And, and Jesus commanded the disciples be witnesses in Jerusalem, check, and, and Samaria, Samaria and Judea. This is where we're about to head. This is the beginning of the next ripple. But it was hardly the result of a strategic plan, this whole, this whole uh, ripple uh, moment. It was a disaster. And I think there's a tension for most of us in life between the pleasure and the stability and the security of comfort and the pain and dislocation of disruption. We long for stability. We long for, for comfort, and yet it is change and disruption that often defines us in important ways. Uh, back in 2000, when uh, East City Wesleyan was, was 12 days out from being planted, we discovered that Claire, my wife, had cancer. And so we made the trip over to uh, Richard and Jane War's home to, to share the news with them. Because this was a disruption that none of us uh, saw coming. How would we come back from this? How could we possibly continue to be a part of the church plant? But we would have no church home if we didn't. That was the reality. That was what we faced. But God was good and gracious and actually Claire's courage and her witness really uh, shaped the church in really important ways before her death in July 2002. In really important ways, her courage, her life, her witness, and ultimately her death showed us what the church needed to become, even in the face of possible death. See, Stephen's death raised the stakes, really raised. You see, it suddenly got a whole lot more dangerous. Uh, it was already pretty dangerous, but it suddenly got a whole lot more dangerous to be a Christian there in Jerusalem. But it did one thing. It forced the church out of Jerusalem. It forced the church out, away from what was becoming a growing comfort zone. This is what it says in verse four. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. Now, the, the discord, the hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews was possibly as visceral uh, as it is between Palestinians and Jews today. Uh, just as deadly, just as violent. Had a long, long history. And it's why I think Jesus' encounter in John 4 with the Samaritan woman is so powerful. You, know, you guys have probably heard the story. It's about a well. There's a, yeah, woman, yeah. They, they actually have water in, at that church. Um, but it's a strange place for the gospel to go first because of the history. Strange place. But it actually goes pretty well in Samaria. In fact, uh, we, re we read in verse, um, sorry, going to need the glasses here. We read in verse 8 uh, that the city actually became characterized by this climate of joy, this atmosphere of joy that was all through the city because of the ministry that was taking place. As the Holy Spirit moved, 
People were healed. Chains were broken. Things were happening. And there was this joy infusing this. Imagine, imagine being here in Christchurch with that kind of joy flowing from the ministry of the church here in Christchurch. And then this really curious part of this chapter, Simon the Sorcerer. Like, it's in the Bible. It's basically, it's basically, if you think about, like, you probably can't even think of a comparison. But it's like the Wizard of Christchurch, except it's Simon the Sorcerer of Samaria. Don't, don't try and say that too fast. And, and this, he's a local celebrity, and he gets on board. He, he follows the apostles around. And while, while there are some, let's call them, initial discipleship teething problems uh, with Simon, um, his popularity is a part of how the gospel gets a foothold in Samaria. So the church is, church is multiplying, despite the disruption, despite the destination. The mission is going forward. At our recent national uh, conference just last weekend, which was called Multiply, uh, I, inv- I invited people to come up and, um, and ask me about about the fastest growing church in the movement. Uh, and it turned out no, no, one, no one could identify the fastest growing church uh, in the movement. I hear that lots of people tried to puzzle it out. Well, it was a bit of a trick question because the fastest growing church in the movement uh, has grown by 500% uh, in uh, 2023. It's our church in Palmerston North. We have recently, uh, in January, made a pretty decisive leadership change there uh, and as a result, the church which had dropped to 12 is now running in the 60s. I mean, it's amazing to see the growth uh, that's happening there. And what's more, they're running two services now, one in Fijian, one in English, and people from all over the globe are coming to the English-speaking service. It's, it's astonishing uh, what's happening. And they're in the poorest part of Palmerston North. It's an, an amazing uh, ministry that's happening there. Uh, active ministry with, with some of the gangs in the midst of the problems they're having in that city, uh, God is really using them. But they've added the service, they're adding these people, that's addition. But in these last 10 months, they've also planted a new satellite congregation in Fielding, uh, 10 minutes away. And that's multiplication. That's not just sticking with addition. See, they could have said, you guys, you guys over there in Fielding, why don't, why don't you come over to Palmy? It's only 10 minutes away. It's only 10 minutes away, you come, come over to it. But no, no, what they said instead was, let's plant in Fielding, it's only 10 minutes away. Let's go there. Let's reach the people there. That's multiplication. And that's diaspora, what we call diaspora. And diaspora is what happens when people spread to new, new locations and take with the, their core identity with them. We see diaspora in the, in the Old Testament when the nation of Israel is exiled. Uh, they become a diaspora community away from home. We see it here in the scriptures as, as disruption in Jerusalem fuels a new diaspora movement. And, and literally, diaspora means to, to scatter. And, and the picture is one of scattering Seed, you, there's, there's that, that part of the word spore in there. And so uh, di- diaspora is the means by which God spreads communities of faith across the world. Now, 
you might have noticed, um, we've got this little dandelion uh, image on the screen. You see, the dandelion is perfectly designed to reach beyond its current geographic location. It's not settling for, for new dandelions right next door. And it all comes back to DNA uh, and, and design. See, the dandelion has got a, a built-in multiplication plan. Each seed, each seed, have a look, is perfectly designed for long-distance multiplication. Each seed has the DNA, has the capacity within it. Each seed is designed with the ability to fly, to catch the wind wherever it blows. And when the disrupting wind threatens the plant, the design kicks in, the scattering of the seed into new territory. And the church has always grown in this way by diaspora. And sometimes, sometimes the wind needs to disrupt us, needs to disrupt. Sometimes the Holy Spirit needs to unsettle us that we might fly to where God is calling us from disruption to diaspora. See, God can grow his church anywhere and, and under any conditions, but we have to get out of Jerusalem. We have to get out. I don't know if you're curious like me about this little verse at the end of uh, chapter seven that, that Kristen finished with. I'm kind, of, I'm kind of blown over it so far. And it says this, his accusers, uh, Stephen's accusers, took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, it's curious, and it's something, and it's nothing all at the same time. This, this removal of an accessory of a, of a coat was really just an act of preparation. Like they were about to, they were about to throw stones, so they needed to like have the throwing arm free to go. So it's just, it's just pragmatic, taking off the coat. But laying it at Saul's feet? What's that about? Well, that actually made Saul the accessory. It made Saul the accessory, an accessory to murder. In chapter 8, Luke acknowledges Saul's role. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. And Luke, the writer of Acts, has it directly has it directly from Saul who became Paul because we know that Luke traveled uh, with Paul. And so Paul, in a strange way, is also a witness of, of a different kind. And Acts 8.3 tells us what Paul got up to. He was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. And if that's not enough, by the time we get to Acts 9, Saul is is threatening the church. He's so fired up that he goes to the high priest and asks for letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation as he goes up there to arrest any followers of Jesus that he found. He wanted to bring them back, men and women, so whole families. He wanted to relocate them uh, to, to prison uh, in Jerusalem. And it's on the way for this... Um, I guess Clint would call this a missions trip of, of sorts. It's on the way to this missions trip that God intervenes 
with one of the most significant acts in human history. Paul encounters Jesus. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. I suspect it's easy to forget that beyond it all, Paul was really just an ordinary guy. I know that, there, I know that in ways he was extraordinary and, and he was certainly very zealous. Whichever side he was playing for, he gave it his all. But each morning, when he started his day, he put on his tunic, one head at a time, like we all do. Yeah. I, I didn't wear trousers back then, so I'm just trying to be contextually uh, accurate. But he faced all the same questions that we do. All the same questions. How has God called me? How has God shaped me? What has God given me? How is it that I am to make a difference in the world? How does my background of aiding and abetting homicide prepare me for leadership in the church? That's Paul I'm talking about. Just, I mean, I have, a, I have a history, but it ain't that. But he had to deal with self-doubt and fatigue. He had to deal with the triumphs and the reversals of life. And you've got to, you better believe there was a lot for him to process, a lot of shame and regret uh, from his past. And I think, I think we see this in his writings in other parts of the New Testament, in Ephesians 3, 7, for example. I think we get a hint of this. Paul says, I became a servant of the gospel by the gifts of God's grace. Paul knows that he's nothing without God's grace. Given me through the working of his power, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people. I don't, I don't think that's a false humility. I think that's a, a realistic appreciation of who he is and who he has been. He knows, he knows who he is. The least of the Lord's people, but this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. See, Paul understands himself as a servant of the gospel but one who, for whom God's grace and power is the only reason that he can do uh, what he needs to do. He knows that on his own, he's not capable of what God uh, has called him to do. And Paul's role, you know, in the stoning of Stephen and the persecution of the Christians in Jerusalem which followed, are the beginning of the spread of Christianity. Even as an opponent of Jesus, Paul is instrumental in instigating what will, what will subsequently become his life's, his life's work. Eventually, Paul finds himself back in Jerusalem, full of confidence, the confidence of a relatively new convert preaching to the Greek Jews. Um, and his audience um, at the time, they offer a bit of um, unconstructive feedback. Um, they try to stone him as well. These are, this is the same group that stoned Stephen. Now, you can imagine 
how annoyed they were that he'd swapped teams. Not happy at all. Now they're trying to kill him. And he's smuggled out of the city and he ends up in his hometown in, in, of Tarsus, which is in Turkey. And he lives there for over 10 years. Out of the limelight, on the back burner, before he is called to Antioch and his ministry kicks off. He doesn't come all at once for Paul. God is preparing him. And when he is called to Antioch, he shifts from accessory to apostle because God can use any life, even a life so messed up like Paul, even us. God can use anyone to grow the church. But we have to get out of Jerusalem. Two more pogo stick jumps. The first uh, takes us back to Philip in Acts 8.26, where the Holy Spirit directs him out of Samaria, south towards Gaza, into the path of an Ethiopian court official who was on his way home from Jerusalem. Now, there is much to say about this account, too much to say about this account uh, from the ends of the earth. Much to say about his reading of Isaiah as he travels. Much to say about his own seeking of the Messiah. Much to say about his own personal journey as a court eunuch. And this is an awkward moment for a bunch of reasons. Philip doesn't know him. He's a stranger. He's a foreigner, clearly a foreigner. Just by appearance, he can tell that. But not just any foreigner, an Ethiopian. And you see, the ideal Jew will not engage here. The ideal Jew will not engage. The ideal Jew will look the other way and, and remind himself of not associating with foreigners. But Paul obeys, uh, sorry, Philip obeys. And he crosses the difficult, difficult cultural barrier before him and as we read the story and I encourage you to have a, have a read of it yourself we can see how Philip speaks of the good news starting from where the man was where he'd reached in his seeking so take some, take some time to read this uh, during the week and see if you agree with me on what happens here this is what I think we see, we see Philip doing Remember when he takes God's invitation to move he leaves where he is and he moves. He, he leans into the prompting to go cross-cultural, to go to a risky place that he doesn't want to go. He's conditioned to not want to go. Culturally, socially, religiously conditioned. He listens before he speaks. He listens. He asks a question. He asks a question, a, an honest question. He starts where the man is. He takes time to understand and then he does something else. Really significant. Because I, I could do that, right? I could do that. You could probably do that. But what he does is he goes the next step and he shares the good news. Having made that investment of time and attention, he goes the whole way and he shares the good news. I'm struck by how active God is in this whole uh, moment and how responsive Philip is because he's taking, he's taking a chance. He's playing his part 
he's, he's living in the moment, prompted by the Spirit, and he's, he's jumping into these opportunities to make disciples. And what's really interesting, the early church fathers uh, tell of the Ethiopian officials' evangelistic work on his return to Ethiopia. And while we don't have huge amounts of documentary evidence of the first century church in Ethiopia, there is this early confirmation of evangelistic work that's happening in this country. Uh, did you know that Ethiopia was the second country in history to become uh, a Christian country, to accept Christianity as its state religion? Remarkable. From one disciple comes the Ethiopian church. From one disciple-making moment, one disciple-making moment, the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. See, making disciples should always lead to making churches. It's how it works. But it will require us to go cross-cultural into those hard places that we find uncomfortable because we have to get out of Jerusalem. We have to get out. Second pogo stick jump into Acts 10. Uh, we're in Caesarea in Judea. So Samaria, tick, and now we're in Judea, tick. It's all playing out. And Peter, uh, sorry, uh, it all starts with a, a Roman uh, army officer named Cornelius. Now he's a devout God-fearing man and so are his family. And that's a sign that he is a Gentile uh, who is, is living his, uh, his faith according to the Jewish laws, uh, by and large. He just left out one little piece. Uh, most of these God-fearers didn't go all the way with circumcision. I think that's wise, uh, personally. Um, it's understandable. Um, uh, so he's a worshipper of Yahweh, uh, and he's in Caesarea in, Ju in Judea, and he has this dream uh, in which God tells him to send for Simon Peter, who's in Joppa, which is uh, now kind of encapsulated by the modern um, Israeli city of Tel Aviv. Uh, so that, that's what happens. So he sends the people off to find Simon Peter. Meantime, Peter is dreaming about food, which I get. I'm the sort of person that actually puts on weight while I sleep, just dreaming about eating food does it for me. But this is not that kind of dream for Peter because this is a dream about food that he's not allowed to eat. What kind of dream is that? He's not allowed to eat this food uh, according to Torah. Um, and uh, this dream helps him to embrace the truth that there is no one who is unclean and that the gospel is for the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit is for the Gentiles. And this vision is so powerful that it leads him uh, uh, to, to, to find uh, the centurion and Cornelius in, in uh, Caesarea. And it becomes the basis for, for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem actually embracing this truth as well uh, when Peter returns. Again, to some criticism uh, from the Jewish council for being so inclusive, which is just as well because most of you here today, uh, along with me, are Gentiles. And it's from these moments that we were included in the church as well. And so the church in Caesarea opens that day. It's where the church in Caesarea kicks off in this, in this uh, Israeli town. But it also signaled the opening of many churches uh, across the Gentile world. The gospel beginning to go to the ends of the earth, even the Gentiles. And I'm sure you'll be hearing more about that in coming weeks. 
Is he making disciples, whether it's in Ethiopia or in Judea or in Samaria? It should always lead to us making churches. But we have to get out of Jerusalem. Making disciples always leads to making churches. But here's the uncomfortable truth. Making churches does not always lead to making disciples. It doesn't always lead that way. They're not the same thing. And we can make church and never make a disciple. It's a sobering thought. We have to get out of Jerusalem because Jerusalem will kill us and it will kill the church. At our, our national conference last weekend, our, our Director of Discipleship and Training, Joe Kirk, shared this uh, quite a compelling message from Mark 1.17 and it will be available on video uh, shortly. I encourage you to, to listen to it. Well, I'm just going to completely blow the punchline now so maybe you shouldn't bother. Um, and she said, uh, she said this of Mark 1.17, which says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of people. You know, familiar uh, verse. And she emphasized the breadth of that invitation, that it's an invitation to come. And it's an invitation to follow. And it's an invitation to be made into something uh, by God. But she also pointed out that so often uh, we have this opportunity to, to kind of jump off the invitation at any point. Some of us this morning, are, we've come. Some of us this morning, we're following. Some of us this morning, our, our desire is to be made into something by God that we cannot do ourselves. But at any point, we can stop in our response. These are all qualities, this coming and following and being made, they're all qualities that will qualify us as Christians, by most criteria being applied today, we show up at church. We show up at small group. We might even show up to the prayer meeting on Tuesday at 7 a.m. And by the way, I heard it was really good, so come next week. We give. We serve. And it's possible to be all of these things and never go fishing for people. It's, it's the same point that Clint made earlier and made a couple of weeks ago that mature Christianity includes the act of discipling of another person towards Christ. This is the story of the spread of early Christianity in the early church. We have to get out of Jerusalem. We have to get out. We have to get out into our Samaria, our Judea, across these cultural and social divides, across religious and geographical divides to go to the ends of the earth and, and planting communities of faith, faith wherever the wind blows us, making disciples and making churches. There's a quote, I think, I think you might have shared it earlier in the series, Clint, that I think is really instructive to us today. As we just, as we just soak in the disruption of the Acts church. Just soak in that. What if Luke isn't just telling us this is how it was, but he's also saying this is how it can be.
We have to get out of Jerusalem. Will you pray with me? Father God, we're amazed and grateful um, and yet at the same time uh, deeply troubled by what we see of your church in these earliest years of her development. Of what we see of persecution uh, alongside multiplication, of, of what we see of, of, of people being prepared to die so that others may live. It's troubling, Lord, because it's disruptive. But it's captivating because it's the work of your Holy Spirit in amazing, unprecedented, surprising ways. Ways that exceed our expectations of ourselves, exceed our expectations of our churches. And so God, we, we want to sit a little bit with the disruption. We want to sit a little bit with the uncertainty. We want to sit a little bit with the possibility that you might call us to something beyond our current experience. That you might call us from our comfort to places of disruption. So we dare to pray, disrupt us, Lord. Disrupt us. But God, use us. Fill us. Confirm in us that we belong to you. Confirm in us your Holy Spirit in us. God, we're open. We, we just want to do what it is you have for us to do. And so lead us. Draw us. Invite us that we might be people who come and follow and who are being made by you into people that would give it all for the sake of others. Help us. Help us out of our Jerusalem into the Samaria and the Judea that you have for us. Help us in our neighborhoods and communities, our schools, our workplaces and in this city. We long to be where you are, Jesus. And so lead us and guide us, we pray in your name. Amen.